Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 153. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Paul Zimmerman about the archaeological site Lagash in Iraq. Let's dig a little deeper. Right, welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Chilly, very cold here. Yeah, so we left North Carolina, where we've been for the last six weeks, and this is our second day of travel. We're headed to a big event in Arizona, and for anybody that cares, and it's just been two long days of travel with four and a half more long days of travel to go. And we're booking across the country, 2,200 miles, I think. Seeing a lot of the United States, we went through five states today and not stopping a whole lot. <laughs> but seeing a lot of I it. mean, does it count as five states when you just cross through like a tiny corner of it? <laughs> it was in Tennessee counts, even if it was only for 20 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, today we've got somebody who is... Familiar to the Archaeology Podcast Network, he's my co-host on the Archaeotech Podcast, but he's also been on this show when he worked with us over the summer. Had I think we were on uh, at least two or three shows we did with Paul. So welcome again to the podcast, Paul Zimmerman. How you doing, Paul? Not pretty good. How are you guys? Not too bad. Not- Sounds like you're you're weathering, what, the storm in the south today and uh, <laughs> life in the RV and all that fun stuff. Yeah, traveling across the country in the winter is not like the best plan anytime, like no matter what you're driving, but doing it in a 26,000 pound house towing your car is also hazardous. So we're trying to stay as far south as possible, but we still get hit by snow in Georgia last night. I didn't even know Georgia got snow. So yeah, yeah, fun I'm envious. We haven't had much at all yet in New York and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I can't believe it's January already and we, uh, you know, we don't have a blanket of snow. It's, it's cold today, finally, for a change, but yeah. just doesn't feel feel quite wintry to me. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know where else it doesn't feel wintry? Iraq. Because to me, it's the <laughs> desert all the time. I don't know. We'll find out, though. We're going to talk about, and I I don't even know if we mentioned it on this show. We may, have, we may have mentioned having you on to talk about this, but on the Archaeotech podcast, if you guys are interested, go over to arcpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech. And we'll probably include some links in the show notes. But we've mentioned a few times Paul's trip over to Iraq over the fall and the project that he was working on over there. Now, on those shows, we have a more we do get into a little bit about what he's doing, but we do obviously the thesis of the show is to discuss a little more about technology. So we do that on that show. So we talk about survey methods and, you know, this one of those episodes we recorded, we talked about GIS stuff. So, Paul. Let's talk about Lagash, the site that you worked at in Iraq. Let's set the setting. Where where in Iraq is this? And and maybe for people who don't know, including myself sometimes until I look at a map, because I always forget the whole area kind of just jumbles in my head. Like like where's Iraq in relation to maybe some other countries around it? And then let's let's set the setting for Lagash. Okay, great. No, so it's uh, obviously it's in the Middle East. It's it's to the east of Saudi Arabia. It's to the west of Iran and uh, south of Syria and Turkey, just at the headwaters of the Persian Gulf. So if you mm. could bound it by all those different countries and by that body of water, you'd be right in the middle there. That's Iraq. The ancient Greek name for it, much of it is Mesopotamia, which I'm sure as mm. you remember from middle school means the land between the rivers, the two rivers. And those rivers are the Euphrates, which runs more to the west and the Tigris, which runs more to the east. And they both run basically long courses from north to south before they join up at, at a spot called the Shat al-Arab. 
And that's where the two rivers can join and flow down into the Persian Gulf. Okay. So it's actually a fairly large country, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. but where we tend to focus on archaeologically, uh, and this is definitely changing, but you know, anything that you would have remembered from your Mesopotamia study section in middle school would have been focused on what is now southern Iraq, mostly south of the capital of Baghdad. And that's kind of, if you can remember how those two rivers run, they kind of pinch together. They don't quite touch, but they pinch together kind of wasp waste at Baghdad. And then they spread out again a little farther east and west of each other through the south. And that area historically has been marshes and swamps and deserts and, you know, very rich and varied uh, environment, but also very, very flat. It's basically all a floodplain. Is that the area that's like known as the Fertile Crescent or whatever? I, I remember that yes. from, from school. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the Fertile Crescent, you know, we always get taught that and it kind of gets conflated with uh, with Mesopotamia. But uh-huh. as conceived, really, the, the Fertile Crescent is the uh, the foothills. So the Zagros Mountains and the Taurus Mountains, and then around through like the Anti-Lebanon Mountains and so on. So basically from the Levant, if you draw a big arc that goes up around through southern Turkey and uh, and through western Iran, that would be the Fertile Crescent. And that's oh, the okay. area where there was a lot of, you know, firsts, a lot of first agriculture, a lot of first cities and such. And then it encroached inward, inward meaning west and south uh, into what's now Iraq. Okay. So yeah, depending how you how you remember it, how you were taught it, it could be considered the Fertile Crescent, but I, I like to think of the Fertile Crescent as farther uphill. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. But this whole, and, and the reason the Fertile Crescent got its name, right, is because that's where we've been taught that agriculture was first developed in the world, basically. I mean, it was independently developed in a number of areas, but first developed in that area, what, something like 10,000 years ago, give or take? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the thing about it is, the reason why I like to push it up into the foothills is because that's the area where you can do dry farming, right? Where you can mm, farm yeah. land based off of the available rainwater. To get down into the lowlands, and especially into the floodplain of southern Iraq, you really need to be able to manage the water. And the traditional way that it's been done for millennia has been through canals. So mm. canalizing the uh, the rivers and also building canals that jut off of those rivers into uh, agricultural fields, basically. Okay. Sounds good. Ooh, new favorite word, canalizing. I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I may have just made it up. But. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you did. I feel like I've seen it before, but like, yeah, that's definitely my favorite word of the day. <laughs> uh, channeling, nice. maybe. Maybe that would have been a better word. <laughs> no, yeah. I like it. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, no, I don't know. I was going to say the, the, the canals on Mars. <laughs> right, right. Let's not which go there. Is supposedly a mistranslation of the Italian canali, which meant channels, but. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a whole different thing. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So what? Now you got me thinking about Mars. That was Lowell, I think, that (laughs) did that. Percival Lowell. Anyway. Anyway, (laughs) the (laughs) Lagash. So where's Lagash in this whole in this whole crazy business? Okay, so Lagash is fairly far south. It's in uh, a large governorate, a large province in the south of Iraq called Thigar, and. It's closer to the Euphrates. Uh, in antiquity, mm-hmm. it was probably pretty close to uh, to at least one of the channels. And there's uh, you know canals that run all through the areas, including possibly one that runs right through the middle of the site. It's and you're going to have to break out a map. But if you look at Nasiriya and you go pretty much 25 miles straight north of Nasiriya, you'll find mm-hmm. Lagash. Okay. All right. Now, what is now, we're going to talk about the site, of course, but just kind of setting up here in segment one. Is Lagash an existing city now these days, or is it just the archaeological site and, and historic place that you guys are looking for? Or, yeah, is there something existing today of Lagash? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting question because some places you do have existing cities on top of the ancient tells. This right. is one that was abandoned in antiquity. And, mm-hmm. you know, there may have been a small Islamic, I don't know what time period, presence on it. But for the most part, it's just an empty site. Okay. It's a Tel site, and its modern name is Tel Al-Hibba, but Lagash is the ancient Sumerian name for it. Gotcha. And we'll use the names interchangeably or sometimes call it Al-Hibba slash Lagash, depending on you know who's writing and who's talking. I tend to just call it Lagash. 
because Lagash is a name that you may also have heard, you know, maybe again back in in that middle school intro mm-hmm. to Mesopotamia class. Nice, nice. So because this word is not super familiar to me, I'm sure it's not to people who are listening, but what is a tell? Oh, oh great. So a tell is the typical site, type of site that you get in Mesopotamia. And basically what it is, is an accumulation of building debris and other debris in one spot over the centuries. And so oh. the, 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 the main building material in Mesopotamia is mud brick. Right. So that's uh, like Adobe. You take mud, you take clay, you take straw, maybe dung, depending on who's building, what time period, whatnot. You make bricks out of them. But then instead of firing the bricks, you let them sun dry and then you stack them and you use more mud as mortar to build up the buildings. And what mm-hmm. happens is over the centuries, the buildings deteriorate with the, uh, the sun and the wind and the rain and the buildings get knocked down. And people keep on rebuilding in the same spot over and over. And that accumulation then of building level upon building level builds these massive man-made, human-made uh, sites that are mounds that are visible above the um, above the plain, but they're not intentionally built as, built as such. I mean, there may be advantages that we can get into as to why people would want to live in one spot and have it slowly over the centuries rise. But mm-hmm. that that accumulation in one place where people lived is the like typical site for uh, for ancient Mesopotamia, and that's called a tell. Cool. Right. I think for some reason I always thought tell meant hill in that language. It does. It does. But there are other words for hill that would be used for a natural hill. So depending okay. where I've been in Yemen, I think I usually use the word psalm. And mm-hmm. in Iraq, I learned, at least in this area, they call it Ishan, is for just a hill as a general word. But a tell is something very specific. It's human made. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's really cool. And it makes sense because like people always want to keep living in the same places. I don't know if it's because it's familiar or it's resources or what, but like even when Chris and I were in Philadelphia, like we're standing at ground level and they're showing the first president's house below the surface of the ground because the city has just raised that much since it was built 300 years ago. It's just that much higher now. So people do yeah, that. And that's, something that <laughs> and that's something that you'll see, especially if you travel in Europe, you'll see if you go into the old city center or any place, you'll often see doorways. You know, the front door to the house is actually below ground level. So there'll be a few steps down from the street into the front door. And that is right. like you're saying, because things accumulate. Now that might be more trash accumulation, repavings and so on. So it's a different it's a different process than the than a tell. But yeah, people mm. do tend to live in the same place. And if people live in the same place, they accumulate garbage around themselves. You know, whether that's garbage garbage or whether that's building debris depends where and how and you know a lot of different things. But <laughs> interesting. But yeah. So people tend to live in the same place. Okay. Well, I think on that note, let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about what Lagash is and where it sits in history. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code T-A-S. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. 
Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 153. And we are talking to, I forgot to mention, Dr. Paul Zimmerman of the <laughs> Architect Podcast. And <laughs> I got to bring that out. You're the guest this time. So um, anyway. If you work with us again next summer, I'm just going to call you doctor. <laughs> yep, that's right. Doctor, doctor. <laughs> Dr. Zimmerman was my dad. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, man. Did you just go home? Doctor, 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 doctor. Okay. Doctor. So, <laughs> doctor, doctor. Oh, All right. <laughs> nerd. <laughs> so let's talk more about Lagash. So what time period are we talking about with Lagash? When was this not buried in dirt and sand and other mud bricks? Right. So it's an interesting site because it's really large. It's about 450 hectares, depending where you want to draw the boundary of it, because it, it's a it's mm-hmm. a low site. It's not a big mound like a lot of uh, tell sites are, but it's it's very broad. If you want to draw the boundaries a little farther out because of buffer zones or changes through time, whatever, probably bump it up to as much as, you know, even 600 hectares in size. The main mm-hmm. occupation of the site is from the middle of the third millennium BCE, from a time period called the early dynastic period. And this is yep. the time period that you think about when you think about Sumerians, right? Mm. So Sumerians are the people that first built buildings, cities, the first writing, all this stuff happening in this part of the world. This is a little bit later. The by the uh, by the early dynastic, there's you know a fully developed suite of different cultural traits that we can identify as as Sumerian from their art, from their language, the writing, you know how they live, and so on. And we're trying to definitely flesh that out, um, and have been for well over a hundred years now. Mm-hmm. But in the middle of the time period is that early dynastic Sumerian culture, and that's when the site of Lagash is at its fluorescence. That's when it's the biggest thing. In the late early dynastic period, it was the probably the most powerful city in that wow. area. And so where I said you may know something about it that you may have forgotten from your middle school class is that uh, one of the more famous monuments of uh, Mesopotamian art is something called the, uh, the Stele of the Vultures. Mm. And a stele is a big flat rock usually that's carved and often inscribed and it's set up to commemorate some event, to mark territory, to do different kinds of things like that. It's basically a billboard. Uh, The stele of the vultures is a rock that was commissioned by one of the kings of Lagash to commemorate his victory over the king of a neighboring city a little farther to the north called Umma. And in that, they were both fighting over some plains, some fertile plains that were between the two cities, watered by canals. You know, if you're in that part of the world back then, and so much land is swampland, and you have to drain some of it in order to make fields, and you have to to uh, bring the water into some of the fields with canals in order to water them so you can grow things, and you live in cities, and these are big urban centers, and people are concentrated in those urban centers and they need all that land in order to grow the food so that the people can live in the cities, it becomes a very complex system. And it's mm-hmm. often ruled by very strong priests and or kind of priest king sort of figures. And the king of Lagash then commemorates with the Stele of the Vultures this victory and the against Umma and winning over the the plains that are between them. And it's called the Steely of the Vultures because it's in fragments, but one of the fragments shows the decapitated heads and body parts of the Uma soldiers being carried off by vultures. Nice. There you go. Yeah, that's I'm pleasant. looking at pictures of it now, obviously, because, you know, <laughs> that's what you do when you have the internet in front of you. <laughs> and it's really cool. <laughs> it's definitely nice. something to check out for sure. It's really neat. Those pictures are crazy. <laughs> Before we go too much further, Paul, you mentioned, and, I, and I, I may have missed this because I was also looking them up. You mentioned the dynastic period and the early middle. What time frame is that? You know, How many hundreds, thousands of years ago are we talking here? Right. So basically, we're talking about the middle of the third millennium BCE. So from okay. 
27, 2800 BCE until around 23, 2200 BCE, uh, depending on the chronology that you're using and so on. But that, that's a good okay. rough range. And so what we're talking about is around 23 to 2200 BCE with this, this late early dynastic period when Lagash is the big thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when it's best known for, but actually the name carries on. And that's when it gets a little complicated, is that <laughs> after the early dynastic period, which is the fluorescence of the Sumerian civilization, what we have is the Akkadian period. And the Akkadians are Semitic speakers. They're, so they speak a language. Sumerian is not related to any other language, known language. Uh, it's an mm-hmm. isolate. And Akkadian, however, is a Semitic language. So it's related to Aramaic, it's related to Arabic, it's related to Hebrew, it's related to a number of other languages. And that was our end to finding out about Sumerian languages that uh, people figured out it was an uh, Akkadian was a uh, Semitic language. They started to translate it and then they started to see that there were these words that would creep in that had obviously not Semitic roots. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they started to flesh out Sumerian. And this is where it really starts to get complicated is that Mesopotamia is this weird kind of melting pot that over the millennia, you have people coming in from other areas, settling there and adopting a lot of the same sort of practices, adopting a lot of the administrative practices, adopting the writing, the languages mix a little bit. You know, dirt, definitely, I'm sure there must be a lot of gene mixing uh, amongst people because people mm-hmm. boink. <laughs> That's a technical Obviously. term. Yep. Technical uh-huh. yeah, the anthropological term. Uh-huh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so the Akkadians, even though they're in some respects a different culture, also assimilate to a lot of the uh the, the Mesopotamian culture in a grander sense, which right. is originally, I guess, Sumerian. Anyhow, after this the Akkadian period, there's a, a period at the very tail end of the uh of the second millennium called uh, excuse me, of the third millennium called the Neo-Sumerian period. And that's a bit of a cultural revival. So if you think like a classical revival architecture, mm-hmm. what you get is mm-hmm. a Neo-Sumerian revival. And one of the bigger states in this area is called the state of Lagash. And so you would naturally think that the state of Lagash would be centered still on the site of Lagash. But what happens at that point is that the uh, the center of the state of Lagash has moved to that site, Uma, <laughs> that we were talking about mm. earlier, that was their former foe. And that's where okay. the, oh. the, the, the kings of Lagash rule from. <laughs> hmm. So it does get a little confusing. Uh, you may also, the other reason why you may possibly have heard of Lagash, and if you haven't heard of this name, you definitely will have seen statuary of this guy, is that one of the most prolific builders and commemorators of himself in statuary uh, of <laughs> that Neo-Sumerian period is uh, is a guy called Gudea of Lagash. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so you'll see diorite statues of him. They're very stylized, very, very repetitive in the way that they're done, though there, there's a lot of variability within them. But, you know, he's always got this big head. He's got, he wears the same kind of, um, it looks kind of like a, uh, like a wool cap if you were to roll up the brim. Mm-hmm. And he's always... Commemorating how pious he is, building uh, building temples for the various gods, and he's always shown with like very muscular arms, oversized <laughs> eyes. I was uh, just looking hands. at a picture of him, and I'm like, wow, those are some biceps. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's all taken to be you know, symbolic of how strong of a leader is. He's got this uh, big head and these big eyes because he's very wise and intelligent. He's got the these strong arms because he is he is the embodiment of strength of the of the state. It's done in diorite, which isn't a natural stone there or a native stone there. It's it's imported probably from like Oman. So all these things are just are consolidating the, this sense of power and piety in this statuary of this one guy. <laughs> but the confusion is that it comes from the site of, uh, of Umma. And in the early part of the 20th century, that was excavated very heavily uh, by a French project. And they thought that that was the site of Lagash. And it wasn't until the excavations at Alhiba that proved that Alhiba was the actual city of Lagash. Hmm. 
Okay. Oh my gosh, it does That's get really confusing, confusing at all. doesn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's like, really it's simple. Like a, it's like a big melting pot of people just kind of like swirling around this area at different times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it because uh, there are plenty of other people who can do a much better job than I can, but that's my understanding and, that's, uh, and I'm sticking with it. Sounds nice. good. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So it sounds like we actually know quite a bit about Lagash. What are the sources of information right now that you're pulling from for this with the fact that, you know, you're doing surveys and, and doing excavations and getting ready to do excavations anyway at Lagash. What's the source of the information we have now? Is this historical records from other excavations and areas or, or just like ethnographic accounts? Not ethnographic. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, certainly there's a lot of inscriptions, and that's one of the the benefits of working in a place like Mesopotamia, where there is written language for so long, and that they mm-hmm. wrote on a material that's fairly durable. They wrote on clay tablets. The clay can deteriorate, but uh, but thousands, tens of thousands of clay tablet tablets have been found, probably hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands, uh, and they can be read, right? Okay. Despite being different languages, right? Between Akkadian and uh, and Sumerian. They, they, they can be read by, by modern scholars. So some of the information that we know about comes from these various different inscriptions. Some of it comes from excavations from other sites. Some of it comes from excavations at Lagash. Lagash, there were a couple minor excavations in the early 20th century. Uh, and then there was okay. a fairly major excavation that was started in 1968. I don't know what year it got stopped for a bit, but got stopped for a bit by the Iran-Iraq war and then resumed in 1990. And that was a uh, project that was done. It was a joint project between the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the um, the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. And okay. that's one of the hooks that I have to this site is that the principles on that project were the same people, uh, Donald Hansen and, uh, and Edward Oxenschlager, who brought me to Yemen initially to work on their project there. <laughs> mm. So mm-hmm. these uh, these are very accomplished scholars. They'd been excavating all over, but uh, Hansen in particular really made his name in Mesopotamia as one of the premier Mesopotamian art historians and archaeologists. And, uh, and so that project, 68 to 90, was run by those two. The current director of the project yeah. is, yeah. Uh, is Dr. Holly Pittman at University of Pennsylvania. She was my my wife's advisor, <laughs> so <laughs> she was also on the 1990 project, uh, the 1990 nice. season of that project, mm. as was one of my best friends. So I have a nice. lot of connections to the site, even though I'd never been there. And you know, if I hadn't already talked to you about the people and and the early excavations and and the 1991 ones, uh, you know, on the on the other podcasts and just personally. I would be a little suspect if you were to tell me an excavation from the 60s was orchestrated by the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the, what was it, the Institute of Fine Arts? Mm-hmm. I would be like, is this a potheading exhibition? Are they trying to fill the museums? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> but maybe for people also possibly thinking that, what was the impetus between, between those two institutions, if you even know this in- answer, to start digging there? Why did they do it? Yeah, you know, I really should know the answer to that, and I don't off the top of my head. <laughs> Hansen had been working all over Mesopotamia. He made his name as a grad student working at the site of Nippur. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because it was a very large, very historically important site that had not really been properly excavated. And Hansen was yeah. a big proponent of careful scientific excavations. Sure. You know, maybe the, the standards have changed between 1968 and now, but, uh, but for the time, he was one of the premier excavators. His focus, right. uh, even as an art historian, he was a very good archaeologist, and his focus was always architecture. So that, mm-hmm. that looking for ancient architecture is something that he instilled in me and taught me some techniques of, and it's always been my kind of go-to interest in archaeology is ancient architecture. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, I want to talk about what you guys are finding now, but we'll, we'll probably save that for segment three or what your, what your I guess, uh, research questions are, what you're trying to look for, you know, what the whole point of the, the current effort is in segment three. But is there anything you can tell us about the history of excavations that we haven't already talked about? I'm trying to think, was there anything that happened prior to the 60s or was it just basically, oh, that's that's a good place to go. Why did it take up until the 60s, do you think? Uh, do you have a personal opinion on that? Like, it sounds like if it's a really important site, 
And I know there's been focus in a lot of areas in, in Mesopotamia, you know, the Middle East in the past, just because of its important historical significance. But why do you think it took till the 60s to get to Lagash? Yeah, I'm not certain. It was like I said, there, there was some minor work that was done beforehand, and uh, and mm-hmm. we should provide in the show notes a link to the Lagash Archaeological Project's website where they have a bit of the history of uh, of the excavations there. I, and I don't know what finally pushed it over the edge. I'm guessing it probably was there, there's so many sites in Iraq, and there's so many people that wanted to work there. There had to be a scholar with significant gravitas recognition in the field to be able to get the right permission to work on a site of this scale uh, and this potential importance. Uh, so I think it was just a confluence of you know money, personnel, timing, and so on that, that all kind of came together with that 68 project. Okay. Well, sounds good. At least I got to it, right? <laughs> yep. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, let's take a break then. And on the other side, we'll talk about what they're doing out there now in 2021, 22, what the research questions are and what we still have to learn from Lagash. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 153. And we've talked about where Lagash sits in the Middle East, formerly Mesopotamia. We've talked a little bit about where Lagash sits chronologically and and historically in significance. And now I want to talk about the current efforts at Lagash. What prompted this return to Lagash, aside from some lessening of COVID restrictions? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, the project started, uh, the first season of it was uh, in 2019. Uh, So COVID restrictions is what scuttled 2020. Uh, and, uh, uh, and 2021 was just a little runt project, just uh, four of us, in order to get some data. The, the primary mission was to get some data for uh, Dr. Pittman's grad student, uh, who's doing soil cores. Mm-hmm. He's looking at the environment, the ancient environment in, uh, in southern Mesopotamia, trying to f- you know, answer some questions about what was marsh and what was swamp. Where was the actual coastline of the Persian Gulf in antiquity? A lot of questions we have about where the water was and what kind of water it was, because that helps inform how the people lived in these cities. And so hmm. there's, you know, if you go to a lot of Mesopotamia now, you, you know, especially after Saddam drained the swamps, you see lots of dry parched earth and they're going through hmm. a, a very bad drought at the moment. So it's even exacerbated. And so the, the impression you can get is that well, they had to get the water from these uh, rivers and bring them in canals in order to feed the fields. And then people lived next to where those fields were, and that's how these tales formed. But there's also plenty good reason to believe that it might be something different. It might be that there were some natural high spots, and that's where people tended to live to build more permanent structures. And that over time built up the tells, but that a lot more of the water area around was uh, was swampier, which implies a lot of very interesting dynamics between people who live primarily in the swamps, between the the nomads who invariably who undoubtedly were there, and the uh, the urban dwellers. So the project right now is to really get a, a, a handle on how Lagash looked and worked as an urban center. Hmm. You know, it wasn't abandoned, abandoned, even though the, the power moves up north, 
it's handy for us to ask questions about it because a lot of what we can see in terms of the the pottery that's on the surface and in terms of the architecture that we can see from the sky is that um, it, it fits into that early dynastic period. But there are other mm-hmm. time periods that, that are represented there. So those, those early excavations, they're mostly focused on early dynastic. They found some major temples. Mm. And those temples are in the highest part of the site. It's possible that this site became, after it stopped being the most important urban center, might have still been an important ceremonial center. We don't know the answer to that. The questions that we're going forward to on the next uh, on the next season, and uh, right now the principals on the project are actively working on writing an NSF application, uh, an NSF grant application, and it's going to look heavily at um, at patterns of craft production and industry across the site. Okay. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention is there was a surface survey done in 1984 by Elizabeth Carter, and she found areas of a lot of shell, areas of a lot of slag, and those are probably correlated with different parts of the site that were devoted to workshops and kilns mm. and so on. And so we want to re-examine that to get a sense of how you know the the, the parts of the city where people lived and the parts of the city where people worked, how those work together. Uh, and that's always yeah. a common question with, uh, with Mesopotamian sites, probably sites anywhere in the world, but it, it's a recurrent question uh, with Mesopotamian studies. That's really hmm. cool. That's- do, do you think that, well, I guess the, what kind of preservation does the site itself have? Like, will you guys be able to find like potentially preserved organic materials to get an idea of uh, the the type of stuff that you don't normally find in the archaeological record, basically. Yeah, so that's one of the things that they want to do. They definitely want to do some more soil coring. But um, on tell sites, you can often find drains, right? And so they'll often have these these drains, big like half meter or meter across rings stacked vertically. And so they're like, you know, <laughs> probably taking sewage straight down and trying to dump them down into the water mm. into the water table down below. Um, mm that should be packed with organic remains. And so mm-hmm. I think that part of the uh, part of the grant that they're writing it will be to look at that, if not for this upcoming season, definitely uh, definitely in the near future, uh, is to take samples out of as many of these drains as, as is uh, feasible. And this is a multi-pronged project going forward here. So, you know, I'm still hopefully going to be part of it. I'm still going to be doing surveys. We were talking on the last Architect podcast about the uh, the survey plan, the methodology I was doing for surface collections. But we're going to continue with our aerial survey because you can see a lot of the, in parts of the sites, especially after the spring rains, you can see the the footprints of the buildings. You know the soil stains of nice. the walls, and so we can get a lot about the uh, the urban layout just from you know without even excavating, just from looking mm. at it from the sky. But we also want to add in things like uh, magnetic radiometry and uh, and thermal imaging and you know all sorts of other non invasive techniques in order to you know to try to build up a fuller picture of how the city worked as a city in antiquity. Hmm. That's super cool. And I know you guys talked about this on Archaeotech already, but since you're talking about the work that you're doing specifically, maybe give us a little like overview of how you're doing the work, how you're getting the aerials. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the cliff note of it is that uh, we have a drone. It's a, a DJI Phantom 4 RTK and, uh, and a base station. So basically that uses four different uh, GPS systems, GPS, GLONASS, um, Forgetting the name of the Russian one at the moment, and the um, mm. or is Glonass Russian? Well, I'm I think Glonass is Russian, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think Glonass is. So, what's the European one called? It doesn't me. matter. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, and the European one and the Chinese one, Beidou, and uh, the drone has antennas for all four systems, and there's an also a uh, base station that has antennas for all four systems. And so the drone flies like any other drone. Uh, we program in a flight path, take a lot of photographs over the site, and stitch them together with uh, photogrammetry. Uh, and because cool. it's that that system, it can know its its position really accurately, like within a couple centimeters. Nice. And then on top of that, we're going to be flying. I was just uh, in touch with some people about getting a, uh, a thermal camera. And we want to do some thermal imaging because if we go back in the spring, those uh, those soil stains that I was talking about should show up much 
more visibly, mm-hmm. and it would be great to compare then, you know, what we can see in regular photography, aerial photography, that is, uh, versus what we can pick up with the thermal imaging versus what we can do with other kinds of uh, non-invasive techniques. Uh, and the idea is that hopefully we can layer all these different things together, these different kinds of techniques, and get a really sharp, clear picture of how the city was put together. Nice. Now, that, that leads me to a question going back a few minutes ago to where you were talking about discovering more about, you know, what the urban center looked like at Lagash, right? And my question is, do we have reason to believe that it's different from any other contemporaneous urban center in the area, or we just don't really know a whole lot about it, so we need to excavate to find out? It's questionable how much we'll need to excavate. I mean, certainly there will be some excavations going forward, but right now the focus is being on non-invasive techniques. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I've been out of the field long enough that I don't know the, the proper answer to that. I know that everybody is focused on urbanism and the mm-hmm. city layouts. You know, And when I say everybody, I mean teams from various different countries working on all sorts of different sites, um, not just in Mesopotamia, but, or not just in southern Iraq, but all over, uh, all over Iraq and Kurdistan, up in, well, nobody's working in Syria right now, to the best of my knowledge. But, um, but that was tough. a question that was going on with a lot of Syrian sites. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a regular question and I, and I can't answer for you other than in the very broadest term that that's what a lot of yeah. people are looking at. I can't tell you how distinct we expect this to be, but even mm-hmm. if it's very similar to what other people have found elsewhere, that's still extremely significant and interesting. Yeah, that is. I mean, obviously, even if we know everything about you know, the same type of city in the same type of area, there's always a little something, right, that comes up. And we just, you know, as archaeologists, it, it helps to just get out there, do a survey, do whatever you can do, you know, to find out more information. It just helps put that one more puzzle piece in that area for that time frame, uh, you know, into the big picture. So that's super cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was wondering, too, because we were talking about on the Archaeotech podcast, which if you're listening to this in real time, came out yesterday. And or not yesterday, a couple days ago. And we're talking about the fact that you guys are getting ready to to, uh, one of the things you want to do is a big surface survey. And Mm -hmm. I didn't think about this in the Archaeotech podcast, but you just mentioned, you know, previous excavations, the the big surface survey that was done in, I think you said 1984, 86. And it made me think, I mean, this is a, you know, 4,000 year old site. And it's been, uh, I'm sure that, that soil accumulation has happened in that time, but now over the last couple hundred years, more than likely, there's been more soil deterioration with climate change and things like that. So, man, what could possibly be left on the surface or are things constantly eroding out in this day and age of climate change and and things are being revealed? I'm, I'm curious as to what the surface would even look like of a site that you know, people have been living near and possibly walking over and just picking things up on for the last several thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you go to pretty much any tell site and you walk across it, you will be walking across pot shirts. It's just they like just come up to the feet. surface. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's very different than, than, you know, surface survey that you might do other places uh, because sure. the, the density of potsherds is incredible. And, and yeah, certainly you get places where you have accumulation um, wash or, you know, alluvial accumulation. Uh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, Alluvial, that definitely is possible. I was also thinking uh, aeolian accumulation. Oh, so you've yeah. got a sand dune, for mm-hmm. example. So you you can get things obscured like that. The, the quantity is such that even across 4,000 years, I don't think that you have a meaningful depletion of the stuff <laughs> that's seen on the surface. I don't think that mm-hmm. people are picking up broken bits of pottery in quantities to, to really deeply change what um, what you will see on the surface now. I mean, that said, though, looting has been a problem, especially in the chaos after the last couple of wars in Iraq. And so yeah. if you're on a site that's been heavily looted, that pockmarks them in a bad way, it, which will definitely mix contexts. You're going to be seeing a lot of things that are from earlier in the site tossed up to the surface. It's going to be harder to map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons, just uh, practical reasons why that's going to make it more difficult. Fortunately, Lagash was not looted. And I'm going to have to figure out what I do about the places where those uh, early excavations were digging. You know, if I have a, a 
test that happens to land in one of their old trenches, that's probably not the most useful for me. Or if I have a test that lands on one of their old spoil heaps, that's also probably not the most useful for me. But mm-hmm. uh, but again, it's a huge site, and so those only form a small percentage of the entire site area. So you know, I'll figure that bit out when we uh, when we actually start working. But yeah, pottery yeah. everywhere. My biggest fear <laughs> is that um, that I've designed a system that's actually going to collect too much stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 That yeah, exactly. reminds me when I when I worked in Peru, it was kind of the same situation, and mm, we had a yeah, rule absolutely. that you didn't keep any piece of pottery that was smaller than your thumbnail. Like you just didn't keep it. It wasn't <laughs> worth it. Right. We we tossed it. Hmm. My part of, and again, we talked about this on Architect, part of the what I'm putting together is a system that we can do with a minimal amount of training and with a minimal amount of um, of archaeological knowledge, actually. Uh, so a lot of projects would go and they would collect, uh, for example, diagnostic pot shirts. You get something that's got distinctive decoration on it. You get something that's mm. a rim shirt or a base shirt that can let you readily identify the vessel type. Those would be picked up. But that takes a certain amount of know-how uh, on the part of the, the surveyor. What I want to do is just a full coverage you know, in small samples where you pick up everything, including those tiny little broken bits of pottery. Mm. Uh, and then we can count them and weigh them and do heat maps in our GIS afterwards based off of that. Um, oh, that's interesting. We'll see how that actually some, works. Yeah, you can get some really cool data about like the spread of vessel types potentially and and decoration and that kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And if there's chronological differences, if we see like certain parts of the site belong to one time period and not to another, that's interesting. Mm. You know, again, mm-hmm. it's a huge site, but did it was it always basically in the configuration that we see or did you know the, the the densest parts of the site migrate. Did those did those mm. industrial areas migrate over time? You know we don't know yet, and uh, and we're going to be hopefully answering some of those questions. You know that's super cool. One thing that I'm yeah one thing that I'm always curious about is beginnings and endings, and I'm curious, especially endings with with cities like this. Right? Is there anything in the inscriptions or or historical record? from other places on why Lagash was ultimately abandoned? Do we know that yet? Or is that maybe something we could hope to find out during, you know, future work? Yeah, actually, I don't know. I um, I think my colleagues have uh, ideas as to why it was abandoned, but, um, but I myself don't know. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of funny that you're interviewing me about this because <laughs> having been out of the field for so long, there's so much that I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's sure. kind of embarrassing, but um, uh, well, you know, we're always learning yeah, things, you know. and that's a good thing, right? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, you've told us so many cool things about the site, <laughs> yeah. and I, I wanted to ask one more question, more about like the 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 actual like doing of the work itself, because this is mm-hmm. in Iraq, which is a place that isn't or hasn't historically been a super safe place to go. So I'm just wondering how it is like from a safety perspective, traveling there, being there, living there and, and interacting with the local people, if you even do um, interact with them very much. And, and what, what's that like? Yeah. So it was a little odd when we were there. I didn't feel unsafe at any point. Let me just lay that out there. Um, That's good. Yeah, I uh, I found everybody to be very friendly and inviting. Uh, I didn't have any kind of belligerents directed at me, or I didn't even see any belligerents directed at Americans in general, although I do know that exists. Um, safety is a big concern of the project. It's a big concern of the Antiquities Department. And Americans are problematic safety-wise. You know, people mm-hmm. are much less upset by Italians than they are by Americans there. Mm-hmm. For example, that's it again. I didn't feel anything unsafe, but because of those concerns when we were there, even though it was just four of us and one of the four is Iraqi, (laughs) uh, even though it was just the four of us, we had two different dispatches of police, one from the Antiquities and one from the Digar province that were living in large tents right next to our house. Mm. I could not go Mm. onto the site, even though it was 100 feet, maybe. From the site, I could not go out into the site by myself without an escort. Wow. Um, wow. So we'll see if that continues next time. I'm hoping that it doesn't because it slows things down, you know, and it means that it makes it harder when, um, you know, when you're working in the field, one of the great things is to be able to uh, to make friends with the people that you're working with. 
and mm-hmm. visit them. You know, drop by their house. They drop by your house. Uh, we certainly had a lot of visitors drop by our house, but it wasn't the the kind of thing that I could just casually go visit one of our um, our Department of Antiquities representatives, even though mm. you know at his house, even though his house wasn't very far away. It just wasn't going to be in the cards. And so I'm hoping that that eases up a bit, but I'm not really holding my breath for it. Hmm. Okay. Well, I really look forward to having you on both the Architect podcast and this podcast with further updates. I hope you guys get the funding and get to go out there. You mentioned making it easy for, you know, untrained and unskilled people, which I hope means Rachel and I can come out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Neither exactly. of us know anything about the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, Turn around volunteer. Fair play, right? After you guys did that with me in Nevada. <laughs> exactly. We won't even ask you to pay us. <laughs> <laughs> right? Hey, Rachel, be quiet. Anyway, um, <laughs> Cat's out of the bag. I know, right? You can't edit that out. Uh, it's the law. <laughs> anyway, really looking forward to hearing more about this. Check it out. We'll have some links in the show notes. Um, I've got the Lagash Archaeological Project uh, that Paul mentioned earlier, and then the the episode that we did on Archaeotech. And I'll probably include the link to the episode that's actually coming out post this recording, but pre you listening to this. And because we talked about some of the <laughs> Uh, some of the methods that they would be using on on future survey projects. So, wow. Thanks again, Paul, for coming on. This has been really fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much. It's so interesting. I'm glad you liked it. I did too. All right. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.